I'm Glenn McDormand, and this is ATOS, your one-man space orchestra speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about The Memory of Whiteness by Kim Stanley Robinson, and this was originally published in 1985. Kim Stanley Robinson, of course, is most famous for his Mars trilogy, that's Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, that tells really the, the whole saga of humanity's creation of a new civilization on Mars from the the first steps in a society that is essentially our own, uh, sprawling out centuries and centuries into the future. This, of course, is also how I first encountered him back when I was in the army, very recently in the army. In fact, I was stuck at a particular post for, it was going to be a few weeks with nothing to do, waiting to get to the place where I was going to go do army stuff. And Although I had a lot of anxiety about where I was going next and what that life was going to be like, I actually remember this as a pretty fun time because all I had to do was do some PT in the morning, maybe go check in again with uh, some kind of sergeant in the evening just so that he could make sure I was still alive. But otherwise, I was left to my own devices. And so all I did was read. And at this time, Blue Mars had just come out in paperback. And so all three books were prominently displayed in the spinner rack at the Post bookstore. And I just devoured them in a matter of only a few days. And from that moment on, I was hooked. I picked up all of his new books as they came out. I read the whole back catalog, including this book, The Memory of Whiteness. And I've read just about everything since then. So I'm very, very excited to talk about this book, which is one of my favorites. So with that said, let's get into The Memory of Whiteness. The year is 3229, and human civilization has spread throughout the solar system, all the way from Mercury out to Pluto. And humans live on the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. They live on asteroids, and they even live on small bodies in the rings of Uranus. And some of this colonization happened the old-fashioned way, by shoving people into tin cans and gradually terraforming Mars, for example. But three centuries ago, this civilization solved the problem of energy scarcity and discovered the means of creating artificial gravity and even miniature artificial suns. So every place is now a, a paradise. And for the most part, people can live however they want. And these miniature suns are very cool. They're called wit suns, which has some interesting religious connotations. And these are powered by beams of sunlight that is sent from power stations, which are in very close orbit around the sun. And the real miracle of these things is that this is done with no energy loss, so it's a completely efficient way to power a system-wide civilization, and the miracle of this owes itself to the work of the physicist Arthur Holywelkin, who found a way to combine the cosmological models of relativity and quantum mechanics into a unified theory in a work called The Ten Forms of Change. And what he shows in this book is that there are ten dimensions, five micro-dimensions and five macro-dimensions, and that there are particles called glints that can travel among them. And, and it is the harnessing of this power that enables sunlight to be essentially transported to the outer reaches of the solar system. Late in his life, Holywell can turn to music, and he created this 10-story, one-person orchestra, essentially harnessing the majesty of a full orchestra into a single instrument that one person can play. It's a one-man space orchestra. And it, it is, of course, really a metaphor of what his physics has done with the power of the sun. And this instrument, it's called Holywellkin's Orchestra, or really just the orchestra throughout the novel. 
This instrument is a big deal, especially in the culture of the outer worlds, and it's even kept on Pluto. And the story that Robinson is going to tell us is about the current master, the ninth master, uh, the current master of the orchestra, Johannes Wright, as he takes the orchestra on a grand tour of the solar system playing concerts. And so we're going to get to go with him and travel from Pluto all the way to one of these power stations in close orbit around the sun, and we get to make some interesting stops along the way. Now, Johannes Wright is, of course, as he has to be, more than just the latest in a line of musicians who've been trained to play this crazy instrument. Near the end of his apprenticeship to the previous master of the orchestra, Wright became addicted to a powerful drug. It's basically space heroin, and he went blind during his cold turkey withdrawal. But also during that withdrawal, he experienced visions of Arthur Holywelkin. And while we might just describe these as hallucinations related to chemicals in his body, this for him was a mystical experience. And combined with losing his sight, this episode really transformed him. And he now becomes obsessed with Holy Welkin's work as a physicist. And he wants to explore how the 10 forms of change can work as music. What, what happens when you translate this math into musical notations? But of course, we don't have a story if we don't have obstacles, and so Robinson throws a wrench into the Grand Tour really right from the beginning. Wright is the musician, right? He's the artist, but the orchestra also has some suits, and these come in the form of a board of directors. And the chairman of the board, a man named Ernst Eckern, despises Wright and resents that he has become the master. And as the story progresses, it becomes clear that Eckern is up to something nefarious, something that is going to include the murder of Johannes Wright. And there's even an unsuccessful attempt on his life fairly early in the story, and that gets the ball rolling. But there is more to it than this. We, the readers, learn very early on that Eckern is a member of a secret society, though Wright and his friends don't know this for quite some time. And this society practices metadrama, which is to say that they enjoy creating fake scenarios for people to experience without their knowledge, right? right? Something that they will think is real. And it's only Eckern's group who know that they've staged the whole thing as a type of drama. Basically, it's the exact plot of the movie, The Game. And we might wonder, and in fact, we do wonder at certain points, whether Eckern is really trying to kill Wright or if he's actually trying to aid his art, help Wright compose this music by crafting crazy scenarios, life-changing scenarios. And this comes in the form of attacks, but also things like leading right to the secret personal journal of Arthur Holywelkin, a journal that is a complete fake. Eckern's actions, these scenarios that he crafts, these plague the Grand Tour, but they are largely in the background because Robinson tells this story from the perspective of one of Wright's traveling companions and from the perspective of Wright himself. Mostly, we do get some other perspectives. Throughout the tour, Wright leans more and more into his mysticism, and, and this really happens in three steps before we get to the climax. Now, I just mentioned this fake journal that Eckerd leaves for Wright, though neither we the readers nor the characters know that it's a fake until very close to the end of the novel. But this journal details Holy Welkin's own mystical experience, and this is something that happened on the asteroid Icarus. And I have to say that this is very cool and something that I didn't know until reading this book. The asteroid Icarus, of course, is named after the character from Greek mythology, this kid who flew too close to the sun with the artificial wings that his father had invented. And getting too close to the sun, of course, melts the wax and ruins the wings and causes him to fall to his death. 
And this closeness to the sun, that's the link between the person and the asteroid that bears his name. The asteroid Icarus is a lone asteroid in a highly elliptical orbit that crosses the orbits of Mars, Earth, Venus, and Mercury. And so at the apogee of its orbit, it's further away from the sun than Mars, but at its perigee, it's closer even than Mercury is. And when Robinson wrote this novel, Icarus came closer to the sun than any other object that we knew of, though we've since found several other asteroids that come even closer. All right, Astronomy Fact Corner is is over. We can return to this mystical experience now, right? So Holy Welkin's mystical experience on Icarus is wrapped up in a mysterious religious cult called the Greys. And nobody outside of the group really knows anything definite about them, but everyone thinks they are sun worshippers because they have a heavy presence on Mercury, on the power stations around the sun, and even Icarus itself is their special domain, which they colonized early in humanity's settlement of the solar system before the creation of these Whitsons. And the fraudulent account of Holy Welkin's visit to Icarus has the the leader of the Greys claim that they are part of the millennia-old Mithras cult that was a big deal in the Roman Empire during late antiquity and uh, originated as Zoroastrianism in ancient Persia. And this is a really fun idea, this, this idea that despite the success of Islam and the success of Christianity, practitioners of this religion managed to survive in secret until they could make a home for themselves out in space. But of course, this journal's all been made up by Eckern. Now, Wright doesn't know this, and he now wants to go to Icarus himself and experience what Holy Welkin did, or at least see what Holy Welkin saw. And since Icarus is near its apogee right now, Wright's able to do this while the tour is en route to Mars. And when he gets there, he does indeed have a mystical experience, and so do his friends who go with him. But everyone except Wright has doubts about the veracity of their experience. They think that maybe they've actually been manipulated, that there have been some drugs that have they've been given that have simulated a, a genuine religious vision. And there are some other clues as well. For one, Icarus doesn't actually look anything like it is described in this journal. And, and this is a clue for us that the journal is a fake. But more importantly, there are two competing groups on Icarus. And the greys who conduct Wright's mystical experience basically abduct them from the other. And that's very suspicious, right? But this journey to Icarus is, is more than just a mystical experience for Wright. It, it's also about secret instruction in the mysteries of the greys. And Wright learns here on Icarus that the Greys do think of themselves as members of a religion originating in ancient Persia, but it's not really Zoroastrianism or Mithraism. Their core beliefs are wrapped up in the philosophy of time, so we're going to talk about that at greater length in the next segment. But Wright leaves Icarus convinced that the passage of time is an illusion, and that the future is certain, it's predetermined, that it has in fact already happened, that every moment has already happened and is always happening. And this is a profound experience for Wright, who believes this and begins gradually to disbelieve in free will, the idea that we are free to make our own choices. Wright's next concert is on Mars, and I have to tell you, the whole section of this book that takes place on Mars is awesome. I won't dwell on it here, but in this book, we can find really the, the first sketches for Robinson's Mars trilogy. This section of the book is most concerned with political systems and ideological debates, all of which is wrapped up in concerns about environmental stewardship and energy dependence. But what really matters for our plot in this book is that Wright's new composition for his performance on Mars creates a, a religious experience that far surpasses anything that ever happened at a Led Zeppelin concert. And Everyone who was there 
here's something different in the music, but it's always something intensely personal. It's echoes of a melody that matters to them, a, a song from their childhood or the song that was playing during their first kiss, for example, right? We all, we all have songs like that in our memory. And this music also induces a mystical experience in everyone who is hearing it. And it's something that people talk about long after the performance. And most of the people who we see talking about this have had a real positive, a real uplifting experience, something that is drawing them to other people. But after he has played this concert, Wright himself begins to withdraw from fellowship with his friends. And and by the time they get to Earth, he is obsessed with his work translating Holy Welkin's physics into music. And it is on Earth that Wright's companions discover, finally, what Eckern is up to. But Wright just doesn't care about any of it because he no longer believes in time. He no longer believes in free will. And so he thinks that nothing we do matters, at least not in the sense that anything we do will change preordained events. But even as he withdraws, Wright is still profoundly affected by his experience of Earth. And this is really some of the best writing in a book that is gorgeously written throughout. So I just want to read a a pretty long passage about how strange the Earth seems to someone who grew up on Pluto. The size of everything was wrong and the sky was too big. Each hemisphere on Pluto, and in each outer terra with its bubble of air, presented the observer on the ground with a small blue dome, sometimes one through which stars shone. On Earth, however, the sky was an immense, solid blue dome, which leaped overhead in a shape like the pointed end of an egg. And it was so blue, and it was such a big world. A giant among Terrans, Johannes was dwarfed by Terra itself. The surface of the endless poster-blue sea seemed a perfectly flat plain. For the first time, he saw how intelligent men in the earliest days of history could have thought the world flat. I just love this description. Of course, I love what Robinson here is doing with the colors, especially the emphasis of blue, but also just thinking about scale and about how it would feel to see a sky so big. Well, from Earth, the orchestra tour travels to Mercury, where there is still a a remnant of the pre-Holy Welkin civilization there. Mercury's principal city is called Terminator because it is a city on wheels that travels at the same rate of speed as the planet's rotation, and this allows it to always be at the Terminator between day and night, and this provides the city with sunlight without exposing it to the, the full power of the sun, which, at such a close orbit, would be disastrous. And this is a really fascinating image that has stuck with me for a long time, ever since I read this book for the first time. On Mercury, Wright talks with an important member of the Greys and and finally discovers Eckern's deception. He learns that the journal was a fraud and that Arthur Holywellkin never went to Icarus. Nonetheless, his physical theory, his cosmology, is related to the Greys' beliefs about time which are indeed that time is an illusion and that all events that will ever happen have already happened and are always happening. Well, we have made it from Pluto to Mercury, and so now we come to the end of the book. Wright insists on traveling to Prometheus, which is one of the four power stations that orbit the sun more closely than any natural object. The proximity to the sun, but also the bizarre physics that make the power stations possible, means that Wright can't get to Prometheus on the ship that he's been using since Pluto, and so he has to be taken there by the people who manage the station. And these people are greys. And what this means is that this religious group controls one of the four power stations upon which the bulk of human civilization is utterly dependent. The greys bring the orchestra to Prometheus as well, and Wright performs for them. But the only space on the station for the orchestra is actually 
outside the station in what is called a holy welkin sphere. It's a, a clear bubble in which there is gravity and atmosphere, and, and people live in these things out in the, the outer parts of the solar system. So, floating in space, Wright plays his final composition, and as he plays, the sphere drifts toward the, the font of energy that this power station produces, and if it touches the singularity, Wright will die. And he's in control of the sphere, and so he can stop this drift if he'll stop playing his piece. But he seems to refuse to do this, and his his friends, his traveling companions, are, are looking on horrified while they realize what is going to happen. And in the end, Wright runs into this singularity, and he and the orchestra disappear. And this is how the novel ends, with Wright's death, a death that is in some way by his own action or his refusal to take action. And even though we have seen Wright becoming increasingly despondent and withdrawn and given to inaction, prone to this just real acceptance of whatever might happen to him, this ending still came as a surprise to me. Reading the description of this sphere moving towards the singularity, I know that it's going to get there, but I think that when the sphere touches the singularity, perhaps something mystical is going to happen, that it's not actually going to lead to Wright's death as all of his friends think that it is, but it does. And it's a real shock. It's a real surprise. But it also raises a lot of questions about some of the central themes and motifs of this story, questions about time and free will. And, and although this death did shock and surprise me at the end of the book, this is really how the novel has to happen, right? Once this happens, we realize that one of the central themes of this book is looking at what happens to us if we stop believing in free will, if we stop believing that the things that we do matters. And it leads ultimately to the death of this young man, this creative genius with a whole life and so much promise ahead of him. And so I want to move now into talking about some of the themes and motifs of the memory of whiteness. And I want to look at two topics in this segment, time and, and music. And, and really, we're going to see how Robinson weaves these two together as parts of a whole. Okay, let's start with the philosophy of time, which really drives the character arc of Johannes Wright. And what I want to do here is just read and explicate some passages from the text. And while much of the story is concerned with the question of who is a real gray and who is a pretender, I want to take statements from the, the two different groups as my jumping off point. At the end of the book on, on Mercury, Wright and this gray have a really significant conversation. And, and this is what the gray says about time and about cosmology. In the vast reach of infinity, every possible combination of being must have been realized, not only once, but an infinite number of times. This is the principle of eternal recurrence, which is proven by Holy Welkin's work and by all the work we have done since then. Thus, the past will be returned to, and the future has already been, not only once, but infinitely, and in every possible combination of cause and effect. To know this is to know the reality of the universe. And then he goes on to say that the, the way that we feel is just a part of the illusion that we call time. Now, the group that Wright talks with on Icarus says very much the same thing, even though it seems that they were fakes, members of, of Ekron's secret metadrama society. But the, the gray that they meet there says that the future and the past exist eternally. He also directly connects this, this core belief of the Greys, with the origins of the philosophy time in ancient Greece. And he, he claims, almost certainly falsely, uh, but he claims that the Eleatic philosophers, such as Parmenides and Zeno, were Greys. 
And he summarizes their understanding of time as the contrast between being and becoming. And this is a great jumping off point to explicate the philosophy of time and talk about the background behind Robinson's story before we get into the the philosophical conflict at the heart of it. Very basically, at a very broad level here, the philosophy of time asks what time is and what time's properties are and what time's characteristics are. And on the surface, I guess this can seem like a silly question because we are living lives that change from moment to moment. We've all got digital clocks everywhere around us. We know what time we have to be at work. We know how long TV shows run for and so on, right? We live in a world where time is ever present. In fact, it's almost an oppressive feature of our lives. And so this can seem to be kind of a silly question. But Augustine, the late antique philosopher and Christian theologian, put the problem best, I think, in his book, The Confessions, when he says that, well, when no one asks me what time is, of course I know exactly what it is. But as soon as I have to explain it to someone, I realize that I have no idea what it is or how to describe it. And that is absolutely true. And so this question of what is time goes all the way back to the roots of philosophy in ancient Greece. In ancient Greece, and this is even before Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, in ancient Greece, there were two schools of thought, the philosophy of being and the philosophy of becoming. And it's it's clear that the greys are in the being camp, so let's start there. Just as Robinson has his character say, this goes back to the Eleatic philosophers who are named after the city of Elea, where the philosophers Parmenides and, and Zenos live and do their work. And these philosophers argued that change, which is how we would measure time, they argued that change is an illusion, that change never actually happens. For them, reality is a single, unchanging entity, and it's hidden from us behind illusions. And this, of course, is totally counterintuitive to our perception, and and it's hard to really grasp. But let me offer two examples of the arguments that the Eleatics make. And we can even use the plot of this book to, to illustrate this. At the end of the story, Johannes Wright no longer exists. But if a character says, Johannes Wright no longer exists, then that sentence is meaningless unless the words Johannes Wright refer to something. And if they refer to something, then Johannes Wright must be real. He must actually exist because nothing unreal exists. And this is a paradox of sorts. And the other famous argument for a universe of being rather than a universe of becoming is from the philosopher Zeno. And it's referred to as Zeno's paradox. And you may even have heard it before. Zeno says that it is impossible for us to travel from point A to point B. So let's say we want to travel from Pluto to Mercury, like Johannes Wright does. In order to do that, we have to go halfway. That's obvious, of course. But then we'll have to go halfway again, then again, then again, and so on. And this is infinite and and therefore means that we can never really reach our destination because we always have to go halfway first. And this is certainly not how we experience the universe. And so this also is a paradox. And of course, these paradoxes are meant to make your mind hurt, right? They're meant to make you confused and to question what you are observing around you. But we can turn now to some more comfortable territory, which is to say the universe of becoming. And this is a model that believes that change is real, much as we do in the way that we live our lives. But in fact, this system that some ancient Greek philosophers advocated for is actually just as counterintuitive as the idea that change is just an illusion. 
The philosopher Heraclitus famously said that one cannot step into the same river twice. You've probably heard that before, too. And the idea here is that even though we call the Delaware River the Delaware River, its constituent parts are different from day to day and, and even really from moment to moment. And so the idea that it is the same thing is an illusion. And Heraclitus' school of thought carries this even further by saying that this is true not just of rivers, where it's maybe kind of obvious, but it's true of everything, right? Think about it. In what way are you the same individual you were 20 years ago? None of your cells are the same, and therefore, you can't really be the same either. So both of these schools of thought that are in contrast to each other actually describe the universe, they describe the nature of time. They do this in, in ways that are counter to our experiences. And this is also true of the ways that modern physicists try to understand time. And this is something that Robinson does very subtly in this book, because we can, it's a bit simplistic to do this, but we can hold up the contrast between the cosmologies of the relativity model of physics and the quantum mechanics model of physics as being a more sophisticated version of the conflict between being and becoming, a conflict that philosophers identified 2,500 years ago just by thinking about the universe without any of the tools that we have to observe it at these extremely macro and micro levels. And this tension between relativity and quantum mechanics and between being and becoming lurks really in the background of the entire book, because the very premise is that Arthur Holywelkin has solved the problem between these competing models. He's found a way for both sets of observations to be true, even if that seems impossible to us. And in doing so, he has ushered in a genuine golden age for humanity, even if barely anyone can understand how any of it actually works. And I think here's where we need to detour to talking about music in this book. Music, of course, it's at the heart of this story. It, it's about a musician on tour, after all. And Robinson has some heartbreakingly beautiful passages about music. But what's going on with the music here is all about the philosophy of time. It's, it's about trying to truly internalize the mysteries of the universe. And Wright himself explains this to his friend when he's talking about his new compositions that are based on Holy Welkin's Ten Forms of Change, where he says that this music will help people understand the nature of reality. And for philosophers of time, philosophers of anything, really, language is as much of a hindrance as it is a help. I mean, how can our limited vocabularies and grammars accurately express the nature of reality? And, and this is a, a fundamental problem in human knowledge, right? But here, too, Robinson brings in music. He has the Grand Mercury explain that music is an expression of the universe, related to ideas as ideas are related to things— and at the same time that it speaks this universality, it is also most distinct and precise in form. In this, it resembles the geometry that Holy Welkin made such use of. All possible manifestations of human experience may be expressed in music, but always in their form only. You might say that music expresses the soul of experience, not the body. This deep relationship that music has to the true nature of things makes it a language capable of the most distinct and accurate description of the universe. And, and then this Gray goes on to say that this is why people have been having religious experiences at Wright's performances, because his music is showing them, helping them feel, helping them intuit the nature of reality in ways that our language can't possibly do, ways that the, the cognitive, the intellectual parts of our brain can't process. 
And this is awesome, right? This is profoundly powerful for Wright to be feeling that he is doing this, right? And that he himself now sees and understands the nature of the universe. But from our perspective uh, as readers and the perspective of his companions, Wright becomes mentally unwell from this new perspective. These mystical experiences are taking a toll on his mental health. And in particular, Wright is convinced that time is an illusion and that all things have been preordained, predetermined. We don't have free will. We have no power to make choices, even if we feel like we do. All of that is an illusion. And because of this, Wright refuses to take any action when his friends come to him with the evidence that Ekron is trying to kill him and that it will be dangerous to go to Prometheus. He just says that he knows how it will all end, and he ignores them. And, and this is the real tension of the philosophy of time, right? If, if we live in a universe of being, or even if Einstein's relativity model is true, then nothing that we do matters. We aren't individuals in some way. Our lives are meaningless because we don't actually make choices. And the character Margaret is really the voice of opposition to this model here in the novel. She argues that free will does exist, that we are not living in a universe of being. And she does it forcefully. There's some really great writing here. She says, if the true reality is a timeless whole, determined forever, then where does the illusion of succession come from? Why should our consciousness be moving forward into the future when everything else in the universe is static and complete? It's absurd. And and ultimately, this is the real question that Robinson raises. Is everything predetermined or not? Our consciousness says no, but some of our physics really does say yes. So how can we reconcile that? And Robinson goes on to have Margaret say, that's what it means to be human. Our powers are finite. Our ability to know is limited and all our truths are relative. Robinson does not come down hard on a side of this, but he asks us to think about it, to to think about the nature of reality and the meaning of our lives. And this is what literature is for. And this book is literature at its finest. And I think that's a good note on which to move into talking about the strengths and weaknesses of The Memory of Whiteness. It should be clear that I love this book, so I'm not really going to offer any weaknesses other than the fact that the book has to end. I would have gone on reading this book forever. I would have loved it to have been twice as long for us to have visited twice as many places to have seen more of this speculative world that Robinson has invented. But we see a lot of it, and all of it is richly conceived and absolutely gorgeous. But I do want to call attention to three of the book's strengths. And this central question of free will versus determinism that we've just been talking about is really one of the major strengths of this book. This is such an important question for our morality, for our own behavior, for understanding our place in the world and what meaning we have and how we should interact with other people. This is a question at the heart of theology, but it is also becoming a question at the heart of physics. And Robinson blends those two worlds here just perfectly. And of course, Robinson does all of this with absolutely dazzling prose. He's famous as a prose writer, as a real writer's writer. And I know I've already read a few passages here on this episode, but I want to share my favorite passage as an example of this prose. And this is also from their time on Earth. In the time of the Crusaders, Nicosia had been surrounded by a thick stone wall. Now, only a fragment was left, just north of the center of town. Dent reached it, and after paying a small fee... He walked up the bowed stone steps of the battlement, inspecting the stone beside him that had been worn smooth by two millennia of passing hands. On the broad walkway at the top of the hall, scattered groups of off-world tourists stared from behind their sunglasses, taking in the view. 
Below the wall on each side, housetop gardens were shaded by vine-covered trellises and lemon trees and casks. Olive trees shot up like silver-green fountains blowing in the wind. In the distance, mountains shimmered, brown and dusty green, and over it all the white-blue dome of the noonday sky pulsed blue and blue and blue and blue. That passage, and really almost every passage of this book, give me goosebumps. I love Robinson's writing, and I could read this all day. But Robinson is equally well known for his rich characterization, for spending time inside of a character's point of view, exploring the the complex emotions that they can have about even the most mundane of things. And we get that here absolutely beautifully as well. Robinson explores what it's like to have mystical experiences and also explores what it's like to be suffering from a a mental illness here, to to be suffering from depression and and even the link between Wright's mystical experiences and what to us, at least from the outside, looks like a depression. But because he explores this at least half the time from Wright's own perspective, we get a real empathy and we really learn, we really understand what Wright is experiencing. And it in turn complicates what seems more black and white when we are observing right from the perspective of other characters. And it's extraordinarily well done. But Robinson here also is exploring the deep roots of hatred and and jealousy. What makes us hate another person? What makes us be so jealous of something that someone else has that we might be willing to murder them? And even more so that we might be willing to plan an extraordinarily and absurdly elaborate scheme in order to bring about his death in a way that also wrecks his his persona, that in fact drives him to this mental illness. And all of this allows us to empathize with these characters, to step outside of ourselves and experience the world the way that someone else might. And that's a lesson, that's an an experience that we can all take with us in our daily lives, as we can be better people when we seek to understand the world from the perspective of others around us, people in our family and people in our communities. And that is one of the great strengths of literature. Well, it's been a long review of this book, and there is in fact a lot more to talk about. So I hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and come talk with me about the themes and motifs that I focused on today, but especially on what I left out. In particular, Robinson does a lot with religion in this story, from the invocation of Mithraism and Zoroastrianism to naming the device that makes this solar civilization possible after a Christian holiday. And on top of that, there's some potentially messianic stuff going on with Johannes Wright that I would love to talk with you about. But that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, we'll be talking about The Beginning Place by Ursula K. Le Guin. But until then, I hope that you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Music